The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. In the summer of 2004, in the quiet, soggy coastal town of Raymond, Washington, a man lifted a body out of his family's chest freezer. He struggled beneath its weight and couldn't understand how his wife had managed to get it in there in the first place. After wrestling thick plastic garbage bags over the corpse, he grabbed a shovel and buried the body in his own backyard. Even with practice, Disposing of a dead body hadn't become any easier than the last time he'd done it, or the time before that. How many more times could he possibly do this for his wife? Join me now as we take a look into the horrifying and sadistic life of Shelley Notek, a manipulative psychopath who victimized those closest to her, including her own children. You'll learn how Shelley invited three wayward souls into her home, offering sanctuary only to torment them for her own twisted pleasure. Vancouver, Washington, 1960 the story of Shelley Notek begins at a small wedding ceremony between Les and Lisa Watson. The wedding was a small civic service attended by Lisa's family, but the bride was excited anyway. After all, the groom was a catch. Les was tall, handsome, wealthy, and a big shop business owner around town. But the joy of her new marriage would only survive the night. The very next morning, the phone rang. Nothing could have prepared Lisa for what she was about to hear. When are you coming to get these damn kids, said the voice on the other end. Lisa didn't understand what was happening. The person calling turned out to be Les's ex-wife Sharon, a severely depressed alcoholic and suspected sex worker who was raising her three children, Les's three children, in California. Long ago, Les had promised Sharon he'd take over raising their kids when the time was right and that time had come. His ex-wife didn't even wait 24 hours after his new marriage to make sure he followed through on his promise. But for Lisa, it was the first time she'd heard any of it. Not about the ex-wife, not about the kids, and certainly not about Les's plans for her to become an instant stepmother to three children at the age of 19. Soon Les's children moved in. The oldest of the three Watson children was six-year-old Shelley, an undeniably beautiful child who told a new stepmother each and every day how much she hated her for years. By the time Shelley was 13, a pattern of compulsive pathological lying and delinquent behavior was already in full swing as she lied about her homework, stole money and made up stories to get people in trouble. Her devious intentions to hurt people became all too evident when she started hiding shards of glass in the family's shoes. Once she even attempted to set their house on fire. 
But Shelly was only getting started, figuring out the most effective ways to wound those closest to her. And at age 15, she told a school counselor her father had raped her. While Les was investigated, Shelly's parents weren't permitted to see or speak to her. It was then Lisa discovered something under Shelly's bed, a copy of a magazine called True Confessions, and what she saw next stopped Lisa dead in her tracks. On the cover, in all capital letters, was the feature story titled, I Was Raped at 15 by My Dad. Lisa couldn't help but wonder if this was where Shelly had gotten the inspiration for her story. And sure enough, after a physical examination, it was determined Shelly hadn't been touched in any way by her father or anyone else. Even to Les and Lisa, who'd been dealing with Shelly's disturbing antics throughout her childhood, this escalation in behavior seemed unbelievable. After being released back into her parents' care, Shelly's troublesome interactions with her family continued and would go on to be a major theme throughout her life. In fact, what Shelly Notek was truly capable of became so unbelievable, it's what assisted her in getting away with so much for so long. Shelly spent her late teens getting kicked out of various boarding schools due to her manipulative and bad behavior. But when Shelly met a young man named Randy Riverdo during her senior year at high school, her father became hopeful. Hopeful Shelly would settle down, or at the very least, become someone else's problem. To sweeten the deal, Les offered Randy a job, rent-free housing, buttering him up as best as he could. And it worked. In 1973, at the age of 19, Shelly and Randy married. Two years later, Shelly gave birth to her first daughter, Nikki. By this point, Randy had discovered why Les had been so eager to pass his daughter off to him. Whenever Shelly got upset with Randy, she'd lock him out of the house, which turned out to be all the time, forcing Randy to sleep in his car every night. But he wasn't about to tolerate it for much longer. After three years of enduring Shelly's constant abuse, he left. Within two years, Shelly was married a second time to Danny Long, and just two months later, she gave birth to her second daughter, Sammy. Unlike Randy, Danny refused to back down whenever Shelly flew off the handle, and for nearly five years, they fought constantly, with physical altercations leading to near destruction of the inside of their home. Eventually, Danny too had had enough, and just like Randy, he left her as well. At the age of 28, Shelly's enviable red hair, high cheekbones, and athletic frame concealed what was hidden underneath, and men were attracted to her. That's how her third husband, Dave Notek, was drawn in. Dave met Shelly at a bar shortly after Danny left. Dave was around 30, retired from the Navy, and working as an equipment operator for a construction company. When Dave first saw Shelly, he thought she was the most beautiful woman he'd ever seen. After exchanging numbers, Dave began making weekly trips to visit Shelly. Although he lived five hours north of Raymond on his job site during the week, Dave never missed a weekend to visit Shelly and her girls. In the beginning, Shelly played nice with Dave. She'd learned a valuable lesson from her first two marriages. Let the fish take the bait before setting the hook. About a year into their relationship, 
seemed about the right time. That's when Shelley told Dave some horrible news. She had cancer. In fact, the doctors didn't think she'd even make it to her 30th birthday. It was the bait, a complete and utter lie. But would Dave take the bait? He sure would, because by this point, Dave had fallen completely in love and was absolutely devoted to Shelley and her children. If Shelley died, the girls would need someone to look after them. Hearing the sad news only made Dave feel more determined to stick by Shelley's side. Once Dave had taken the bait, Shelley set the hook, and that's exactly the moment the abuse began. Now on weekends when Dave returned home, Shelley was a nightmare, beating and screaming at him as well as insulting him in front of the girls. But as far as Dave knew, Shelley was dying of cancer. How could he possibly fight back? He felt compassion for her, so much so that he decided to marry her in 1987. Shelley's witness for the ceremony was her best friend, a local hairdresser named Kathy Lorino. Besides a few incidents here and there, Shelley's daughters, Nikki and Sammy, don't remember anything being particularly off during their early years. However, they do remember one time seeing Dave sitting on the front porch contemplating suicide with a shotgun in his mouth and Shelly constantly yelling at him. But up until Shelly and Dave married, the abuse had never been targeted towards them, at least, not that they could remember. After getting married, the Notex moved into a new home just outside of Raymond, Washington. Nestled among the Pacific Ocean, amongst the trees of a temperate rainforest, Raymond was the kind of place where locals proudly used the term Padunk to describe their town of only 3,000 residents. People there tend to mind their own business and avoid prying. Shelley just happened to know just how to exploit that attitude. The kids had hoped the move might improve the mood around the household, but instead, it's when everything started to go wrong for them. It seemed when David left the home during the week for work, Shelly needed an outlet for rage. That's when Nikki and Sammy came into focus. The abuse started with harsh physical punishments for misbehavior, spankings and wax from a wooden spoon, spatula, or anything within reach. Pain Shelly seemed to enjoy inflicting. And when that got boring, Shelly found new ways to degrade her daughters, including telling them one day, the well was running low on water, and they were no longer allowed to take showers. She then forced them to go to school unclean, sometimes for weeks on end. But as you might have already guessed, the well wasn't running low on water. Shelly had made it up, just to be cruel. She soon decided the girls now also had to ask permission to use the bathroom. Out of absolute necessity, Nikki and Sammy would often end up urinating into bottles or jars during the night, terrified of waking up their mother to ask to use the toilet. Incrementally and deliberately, Shelley was stripping her children of all their dignity, self-esteem, and sense of security. But despite the bouts of intense physical abuse, there were often moments of extreme tenderness afterward. Good hours, sometimes even good days, and on occasion, good weeks. This glimmer of hope had the girls believing somewhere deep inside of Shelley was a tender mother who truly loved them. It was all Shelley needed to keep her girls quiet about the abuse 
no matter how bad it got. For Nikki, the cruel punishment seemed to escalate on one night in particular. She was jolted from her sleep with Shelly turning on her bedroom light and screaming at her to go outside without any clothes on. Shelly then ran the garden hose over a patch of dirt in the yard, turning it into a muddy hole and demanding Nikki roll in it. And there, holding the hose, spraying Nikki with freezing cold water, her bare body covered in the mud, was Dave, doing just as Shelly instructed him. Although Dave was only home for brief periods of time, Shelly made sure to tell him what rotten kids the girls had been while he was away. Another lie. They were bad, she told him, and they needed to learn. In turn, Dave dished out whatever punishments his wife commanded. Wallowing, as Shelly called the new form of punishment, became an all-too-frequent occurrence for Nikki, always in the middle of the night and always without any clothes on, even during the middle of winter. A heartbreaking scene Nikki's sister Sammy became accustomed to watching from her bedroom window. That's when Sammy suddenly began to realize, for some reason, Nikki had become their mother's new favorite target, always receiving more severe punishments than she did. It's hard to imagine things getting much worse for Nikki, but they did. For an entire summer, she was locked inside her bedroom, forced to use a bucket as a toilet, and the only time she was permitted to leave her room was to empty the bucket. When Nikki was back at school, she wore long black tights under gym shorts to hide the marks inflicted by Shelly, including multiple cuts after being shoved through a plate glass window. Like many children who were abused by their parents, Nikki believed the punishments and wounds were her fault, something Shelly had conditioned her to believe, keeping her daughter compliant and suffering in silence. But Nikki wouldn't be the sole focus of Shelly's torment for long. In 1988, just a year after her marriage with Dave, the Notex invited Shelly's nephew, 13-year-old Shane Watson, to live with them. The boy's father, Shelly's youngest brother Paul, had been in and out of prison while Shane's mother battled a drug addiction. Portraying herself as a nurturing mother to the rest of the world, Shelly offered to take him in. At first, things were okay. Shane was given a cozy bed in the basement, along with a brand new set of clothes for school. But what Shane was given didn't come without a price. A never-ending list of outdoor chores. And just like anyone else who had the misfortune of getting close to Shelly, Shane too soon discovered what they already knew. Shelly was crazy. Before long, all the new clothes he was given were taken away. Next his pillow and blankets, and then the bed he slept on. His showering privileges were also taken away. Soon, just like Nikki, Shane was forced outside in the dead of night while Shelly hosed him down as he wallowed in the mud. For maximum humiliation, Shane and Nikki were forced to slow dance together, completely stripped of their clothing. Through tears, the young teens complied as Shelly found a new sense of pleasure from their degradation. But just as things seemed to reach its worst point, something miraculous happened. Shelly discovered she was pregnant for the third time. As far as Dave knew, 
Shelly had been receiving chemo treatments for the past five years. A pregnancy should have been impossible. Dave believed they'd been blessed by a true miracle. For Nikki, Shane, and Sammy, however, the miracle wasn't the baby. The miracle was the relief they'd now get from Shelly. To help manage the teens and around the house, Shelly had an idea. She'd get her best friend Kathy to move in. Kathy Lorino had recently lost her job as a hairdresser in the nearby town of Aberdeen. As a result, she had also lost her house, forcing her to move back with her mother. Until her best friend Shelly Notek asked her to move in with her family in the winter of 1988. Almost immediately after moving in, the children began to notice their punishments weren't happening nearly as often, or as severely for that matter. In fact, Shelly seemed to also be leaving most of her motherly duties to Kathy, while she spent time doting over her new daughter, Tori. The children hoped that maybe Kathy's move into their home might have changed their mother for the better. That's until it became painfully clear Shelly's behavior hadn't changed, only her focus had, and for now, it was on Kathy. In the beginning, Shelly just started ordering Kathy around and giving her a never-ending list of things that needed to be done around the house. But despite everything Kathy did to help out, nothing was ever good enough. That's when Shelly began hitting and hurling insults at her friend day after day. Rather than move back with her mother, Kathy stayed, and you might wonder why. Just like with Dave and Shane, Shelly was careful about her timing. The verbal and physical abuse didn't start heavy and consistent overnight. It happened over time, as Shelly gradually broke each of her victims down. And to make absolutely certain Kathy would remain totally compliant, Shelly began drugging her, most likely with a cocktail of antidepressants and muscle relaxers, among other things. And sure enough, whatever sense of self Kathy had possessed before moving in, had now been completely erased as she was relegated to subhuman status in the Notech household. Just like Shane, all of Kathy's possessions were taken away from her. And just like Shelly had claimed to Dave about the girls, Kathy too was bad and needed to learn. Eventually, Kathy was forced to sleep in an unfurnished furnace room on the cold basement floor. Predictably, Shelly eventually revoked all of Kathy's bathroom and shower privileges, while forcing her to continue doing chores around the house, unclothed. At mealtime, Kathy was forced to drink rotten produce and raw meat Shelly had blended up from the fridge. It's understandable how Kathy's health, appearance, and cognitive abilities steadily began to decline over the course of several years enduring this kind of treatment. But no one outside the household could see it, because Shelly had kept Kathy hidden. Shelly had made sure to isolate Kathy completely from the outside world pretty soon after she moved in, a strategic move that would ensure Kathy would have nowhere else to go, nowhere to hide. Since moving in, Kathy had lost over 100 pounds and her body was covered in open sores. Wounds Shelly treated by forcing Kathy into baths filled with bleach. Kathy's final days were horrific. In the end, she lost most of her hair and all her teeth, 
as her breathing became more and more labored. When she was at her worst, Shelly forced Kathy out of the house to sleep in a 4x4 outbuilding, a cold, damp, cramped and filthy place, even for an animal, let alone a human being. By 1994, Kathy's cognitive and motor skills had declined to that of a toddler. Her brain was dying. At age 35, Kathy's body had finally had enough, and she choked to death on her own vomit. To keep the kids from saying a word, Shelley used the simplest and most effective weapon in her psychological arsenal, fear. She told the children, all of us will be in jail if anyone finds out what happened to Kathy. To make absolutely sure no one ever found out about the horrors Kathy endured, Shelley instructed Dave to burn her body in the backyard, who then dumped her ashes in the ocean. When Kathy's family asked where she was, Shelley told them she'd taken off years ago with a trucker she'd fallen in love with. Shelley even sent a few postcards with Kathy's forged signature to help bolster her lie. It wasn't long before Shelley became paranoid. Shane would run away and tell someone what had happened to Kathy. That's when she began begging Dave to do something about it. Take care of Shane, she demanded. Although Dave initially pushed back, Shelley eventually devised a plan to get exactly what she wanted. She just needed to convince Dave of something that would force his hand, and she knew just the right thing to push him over the edge. Another lie, that Shane had been abusing one of her daughters. The evidence? A pair of bloody underwear she claimed she found in the woodshed. After some more badgering, Dave finally gave in and shot Shane in the back of the head in February 1995, the 19-year-old died instantly. To explain his sudden disappearance, the girls were told Shane had run away to Alaska to become a commercial fisherman. They forced themselves to believe it was impossible their parents could have killed Shane, the cousin who over the past six years had become like a brother to them. A little over a year after Shane's disappearance, Nikki was the first of the children to escape, moving up to Canada to live with her stepfather's sister. Nikki was 21 years old by this point, experiencing her first taste of life outside of her mother's sadistic influence. In the coming months, Shelley tried to convince her to move back home, but Nikki knew better. She knew she could never go back home, not ever. Sammy graduated high school in 1997. Hidden beneath her commencement gown was a tapestry of fresh wounds and bruises inflicted on her by Shelley. With Kathy, Shane, and Nikki out of the house, Sammy had simply been the next in line. But it wasn't the violence that finally broke Sammy. It was Shelley purposely trying to sabotage her future. Shelley had intentionally caused Sammy to miss her college application deadline, and it was the last straw for her. That's when she knew she needed to break free from her mother's suffocating control. In 1997, right after graduation, Sammy went to live with her grandmother, Lisa, for an entire summer. However, she eventually agreed to return home if her mother promised to fix her college application and get her successfully enrolled at Evergreen State College, and she did. 
With Sammy now away at college, nine-year-old Tori was the only no-tech child left in the household. Beatings, punishments, humiliation and depravity, the torment and abuse, always both physical and psychological. For nearly two years, Tori became her mother's favorite target, until one day in late 2000, Shelley found a suitable replacement. Ron Woodworth had been the copy editor for the local paper and a licensed caregiver. He was a smart, well-groomed man with a particular fascination for Egyptology. But his life began to take a turn for the worse after his father died in 1996. His inability to cope with his father's death led to Ron having problems at work as well as in his personal life. Eventually, his longtime partner abandoned him, and not long after that, his home was foreclosed on. By September 2000, Ron had reached rock bottom, or so he thought. He was a 54-year-old man, relegated to living with his elderly mother. He also had no job, very few friends, and recent arguments with his mother had made his living situation unbearable. But he did have one friend who was willing to lend a helping hand, Shelley Notek, a friend he'd met a few years earlier while volunteering for Habitat for Humanity. Just like with her daughters, Shelley wasn't a complete beast all of the time. She had the ability to be loving and charming when she wanted to be. It's also important to understand that Shelley Notek wasn't some sort of cunning genius everybody loved or was magnetically drawn to. Sure, Ron and Kathy seemed to have warmed up to her, but to a lot of people around town, she was known as Crazy Shelly or Psycho Shelly. Whenever she had jobs over the years, Shelly was universally hated by both her employers and co-workers, constantly getting fired not long after getting hired. But Shelly didn't need to be well-liked. She just needed her secrets kept. And that was something Shelly Notek was a master of, especially gifted at choosing her victims, preying on those who had no one else to turn to. Shelly took in Shane and Kathy during the lowest points of their lives. They placed their trust in her, and she took advantage of their vulnerability. With no one left but Tori and Dave, Shelly was determined to show Ron what rock bottom really looked like. In July of 2001, Nikki Notek was 26 and had spent the last five years completely estranged from her mother. That is until one night when she was back visiting her grandmother. Something had come on the television that triggered all the horrible memories of her childhood to come flooding back. All the experiences she tried so hard to forget. The next morning, Nikki confessed to her grandmother that her parents had murdered Kathy it was the first time she told anyone the truth about her mother or her mother's abuse. That same day, Nikki filed an official report with police. They promised they'd look into it. Exactly the steps police took next to investigate are not known. What we do know is that Shelley was never brought in for questioning, the no-tech property was never searched, and although deputies left Sammy several voicemails to corroborate Nikki's story, when Sammy didn't call back, they never followed up. While the stunning lack of investigation in 2001 confused and frustrated Nikki, 
No one would pay the ultimate price, more than Ron Woodworth. For Tori, things improved dramatically once Ron moved into the Notech home. Within weeks, Shelly already had her hooks deep into Ron, and his treatment began to mirror that of all the others. Over the course of two years, Ron completely deteriorated into a shell of his former self, just like Kathy had. Whenever Dave came home on the weekends, he stood right by Shelly's side, dishing out whatever torture Shelly demanded, including forcing Ron to jump off the roof onto their gravel driveway, barefoot, over and over again. By the summer of 2003, Ron's condition had become so bad, he was bedridden, his bed, a bench on the back porch. Tori, now 14, watched as her mother tended to the man's wounds, horrified to see her cleaning his wounds with pure bleach. Watching him agonize seemed to go on forever. That is until one day, Ron was suddenly gone. The story Shelley told Tori, Ron had simply moved out. But Tori knew better than to believe that. She also knew not to dare say a word. When Dave came home from work, Shelley told another story that Ron had committed suicide by overdosing on pills. Sadly, no one besides Shelley will ever truly know what really happened to Ron that night. The Notex knew there was no way they could report Ron's death to authorities without being asked some very difficult questions. Even if it had been suicide, his body bore the marks of sustained torture and abuse that would need to be answered for. While they figured out their next course of action, Shelley sent Tori up to Seattle to spend some time with her sister Sammy. It was the first time in her life she'd been allowed to visit her older sibling outside of the home. With Tori out of the house, it allowed Dave the space and privacy he needed to get rid of Ron's body. But first he had to remove it from where Shelly had hidden it, in their freezer. This time, Dave wouldn't be able to dispose of Ron's body like he had the others. Due to a fire ban that summer, he'd need to bury him instead in order to avoid attracting unwanted attention. When Tori got to Seattle, Nikki was there too. It was the first time the three sisters were all together in over seven years. A reunion that turned out to be a pivotal moment for every member of the Notech family. Before that trip, Tori had never told a soul about the abuse she'd suffered at the hands of her mother. After all, Tori was just 14, terrified, and knew there would be dire consequences for tattling, violent, severe, and possibly deadly. Over the years, Shelley had perfected her skills as a sociopath, honing her craft on keeping her victims compliant, making them believe everything inflicted on them was their fault. But something had changed. Perhaps it was strength in numbers. Perhaps it was the distance. From afar, Shelley couldn't possibly maintain the same kind of stronghold she had over her daughters as she had when they were living back at home with her and at her mercy. It appeared the mental and emotional shackles were beginning to loosen and the girls were finally ready to bear witness to their truths. Just how truly sadistic their mother really was. Nikki had already gone to the police about Kathy. It was now time for Tori 
to let the truth spill free about Ron. Although her mother had told her he'd moved away, Tori knew deep down he was dead and confided in her sisters. On August 6th, 2003, Sammy and Nikki drove to the sheriff's office and told them everything again, including the new details about Ron. Thankfully, this time, police took the report seriously. Three days later, Tori was taken into protective custody while Dave was questioned. In the end, he confessed to what he'd done with Ron's body and where they could find him. In their backyard, he also admitted to burning Kathy's body and dumping her ashes. On August 8th, on what would have been Kathy's 45th birthday, Dave and Shelley were both arrested. Eventually, Dave also confessed to murdering Shane as well. The autopsy on Ron's body was inconclusive, offering no solid proof as to the cause of his death or who may have killed him. And without Kathy or Shane's bodies, they had nothing solid to prove what Dave had confessed to. Without hard physical evidence, securing a guilty verdict for first-degree murders would be a major uphill battle, leaving prosecutors to come up with a deal. No doubt, the sheriff's office wouldn't be overly upset if a lengthy trial didn't happen, mostly because of the inevitable media coverage that would follow, likely focusing on the lack of investigation on the case back when Nikki first filed a report in 2001. In February 2004, Dave accepted a plea deal, pleading guilty to the second-degree murder of Shane Watson, as well as unlawful disposal of human remains. He was given a 15-year sentence and was released in 2016 after serving 13 years. Shelley Notek entered an Alfred plea for the second-degree murder of Kathy Lorino and a charge of manslaughter for Ron Woodworth. The Alfred plea allowed Shelley to plead guilty while technically maintaining her assertion of innocence. She was sentenced to 22 years behind bars. In the aftermath of the arrests, Sammy was able to gain legal custody over Tori. The three sisters now lead happy, comfortable, fulfilling lives. Several years ago, the sisters agreed to tell their story, the whole story, to author Greg Olson for his book, If You Tell. Most of the facts in this episode are based on those same claims made by Nikki, Sammy, and Tori for the book. They wanted the whole world to know exactly what their mother was capable of. Why? Because Shelley Notek is now expected to be released from prison on good behavior in 2022. All three of her daughters are terrified that if released, their mother will simply find new unsuspecting victims to torment and a new reign of terror and abuse will begin. And now I'd like to introduce you to the podcast, Reverie True Crime. I'm Paige, the host of Reverie True Crime. I tell stories of helpless victims, vicious killers, predators watching their prey before they strike, survivors, petty crimes, people we think we know who do the unthinkable, 
and the dangers that lurk not only in the dead of night, but in plain sight and the light of day. Every once in a while, I'll also tell stories of the frightening paranormal, elusive cryptids, haunted locations, and conspiracies that may be silly or thought-provoking. You can listen to Reverie True Crime wherever you're listening to this podcast. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at Reverie Crime Pod, Facebook, Instagram, and even Tumblr at Reverie True Crime. Remember, stay safe, be aware of your surroundings at all times, and take care. Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness. And on Twitter, using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorecords.com.au slash G E madness. I can feel the madness. Someone standing at my door. I hope they can't get in cuz I'm not prepared to run. I can feel the madness. Someone standing at my door. I hope they can't get in cuz I'm not prepared to run.